Greetings in the name of the Lord this morning. We get the uh, privilege of hearing from God again this morning. I love that. We get to hear and respond uh, repeatedly through, through our service. And it's just a privilege each week to be able to gather with you and hear from the Lord. And as always, we sit under the authority of the Word. And so to call your attention again to this pulpit. This pulpit is here not just for tradition's sake, although it can become a tradition. The pulpit is here to symbolize the authority that we come under when we gather here, not just on Sunday mornings, but through the week. So God has authority over our lives, not just when we gather here at 10 o'clock to 11.15 or whatever it may be when we get out, but God has authority over our lives every minute of every single day. And so we are sitting under the authority of the Scriptures, as do I as I preach them. Uh, You do not need me this morning. We together need God And that's why we come to gather on Sunday mornings, just to hear from God. So let's pray one more time and ask for the Lord's help as our ears begin to be opened up and our hearts begin to be opened up to hear what God has for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. It's a privilege to sit here and to think about the reality of For the sons and daughters of you in this room, that there is not animosity between us and you. And we're unified here this morning under the blood of Jesus. And so we're all in the same spot. If you're hearing these words come into your ears, if you're a Christian, then your sins are forgiven. You're beloved of the Father. You're His. And there's no fear. You don't have to be afraid that if you were to die even in this moment, you know that you'd have a place at His table. For those who had a difficult week, help them to know that their sins are forgiven. For those who had a fantastic week, help them to realize that their sins are forgiven and that they are not right with God because of their fantastic week, although we thank you for it. Open our ears, not just our physical ears, but open our spiritual ears, open our spiritual eyes, open our hearts. The deepest place of thinking in our bodies comes from that heart, that mysterious place within us and help us to hear with our hearts this morning what you have to say. And we trust God that you're going to speak. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I love wrestling, or as my father calls it, wrestling. With Ransom, uh, we love to wrestle and fight. That's what we say. Hey, you want to wrestle and fight? And uh, Jordan gets nervous. Um, At times, he jumps into the side of a bed and splits his lip open. True story. But we do love wrestling and fighting. It doesn't detour him when he gets hurt. He continues to want to wrestle and fight. Uh, I, I regularly, when we're wrestling and fighting, restrain my strength so not to hurt him, but also to let him win because there's benefit for him when he prevails over me. I have purpose in it. I want to teach him how to be tough. And men, if you do not roughhouse with your children... By the way, there's a great article on theartofmanliness.com on the benefits of roughhousing. There's so much to be learned 
by a father teaching a child how to restrain the strength that he has and how to control the aggression that he has. And many men who are abusers used to be boys who were never taught how to control their strength. So young boys and young girls, for that matter, need to see from fathers controlled aggression. And young boys need to learn up, grow up, and learn that they can be strong protectors, not strong harmers. There's much to learn from wrestling, from house, from rough housing. Roughhousing. So even though I let Ransom beat me up, so to speak, and regularly say to him, you got me, at times I want to show him that I am quite stronger, a whole lot stronger than him. And in an instant, I can grab him and body slam him. And he realizes, ooh, dad's in charge. Genesis 32 is one of the truly odd, at first glance, chapters in the entire Bible. And it's one of the reasons I love preaching through books of the Bible, because it's a very, just odd chapter. You know what happens when we go through odd chapters together? We wrestle, we pray, and we see, what do you have for us, God? What do you have for us in this? We don't want to say, well, that's an odd, weird chapter, so on to the next. What does God have for us in Genesis chapter Chapter 32, there's unique language in the chapter that man prevails over God that should cause us to pay attention a little bit when language like that, you have wrestled with God and with man and have prevailed. Jacob, it should cause us to kind of clean our ears out a little bit. Wait a second, what? How does, how does a person win or beat or subdue the God of the universe? It's got unique language in it for sure. We could go down a quite weird, odd, crazy path if we misunderstood or misapply or misinterpret this passage. So we see in this passage Jacob's conversion, the great patriarch. We see his conversion. We get an inside look at what it looks like for a man to surrender to Jesus and for Jesus to be patient and walk with a man, wrestling with him until the man clings to him. What does it take for Jacob to stop offering gifts and submit to God offering him nothing. What will it take to get a man who has everything? He tries to barter, he tries to wage, to try to get his brother's appeasement. What will it take for Jacob to submit to the God of the universe? Well, Jesus is patient. And Jesus will not force anyone, I'll say that again, will not force anyone to follow Him, He wrestles with us and causes us. That's how powerful God is. Causes us to willingly walk His way. So nobody walks to Jesus. Jesus causes us to willingly walk to Him. And if you want Jesus this morning, you can have Him. But He has to cause you to want Him first. And so He's patient with Jacob. And Jacob brings even the proudest people, Jesus, excuse me, the proudest people to the point of surrender. Even Jacob, even you, and even me. The sermon's going to break down in two acts, scenes, so to speak. Act 1, Act 2. Act 1, we're going to see Jacob's fear of Esau, his older brother. And we're going to see that as somewhat of a metaphor for Jacob's dealing with Act 2, Jacob's dealing with Jesus. 
So act one, Jacob and Esau, metaphor for what's going on in reality with Jacob and Jesus. Make sense? Act one, act two. Scene one, scene two. If you remember, Jacob deceived repeatedly his brother Esau. And he goes into a foreign land, leaving his brother behind in that deceit. His brother was murderous towards, Esau was murderous towards Jacob. And Jacob remembered the deception that he had, that he had done over and over again to Esau. And in coming back into his land, into the land where Esau dwelled, he was afraid. He was nervous. What is Esau going to do to me? Has he held this resentment all these years? I think so. Is he still angry with me for stealing his birthright and stealing his inheritance? How is Esau now? It's 20 years removed, but he is afraid of what's going on with Esau, and he wants to appease Esau's wrath. And so we're going to see in this scene that it is a metaphor. It is a picture of what's going on behind the scenes with Jacob and God. Verse 1 through 5, Genesis chapter 32. Look at it with me. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanium. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkey, flocks, male servants, female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Jacob remembers 20 years. He remembers the disposition of Esau when he fled. And he thought, he's angry. How can I get in good favor with Esau? What can I do to make things right between me and my brother? And so he sends a servant ahead and offers gifts. Maybe the things that I have will win the favor of my brother. I've sinned against him, but maybe there's something in my possession that I can give to him and I will win his favor. That he would look upon my face and he would no longer be angry, but I can give him these things and prepare a way for me to walk into this land. What can I do? I'll give him gifts. The messenger returns. He gives the word to Esau and returns back to Jacob with some quite terrifying news. Verse 6 through 8, it unfolds like this. The messengers return to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided two people. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that is left will escape. So the word comes back. There's 400 men. Esau apparently doesn't tell Jacob whether he's going to accept the gift or not, but he's coming his way with 400 people. I don't know if this is to intimidate. I don't know if this is... I don't know what, if there's different emotions with Esau in this, we're not told. But Esau, we are told, is coming with 400 men, and Jacob is terrified. He's greatly afraid and distressed. And in verse 8, Jacob comes up with the plan. I'm going to divide into two camps, therefore, if one gets destroyed, the other's still there, they can go away, and at least they will be saved. So Jacob is beginning to think, how can these things work in such a way where we are not destroyed? Well, the situation is distressful, and like most distressful situations that we face in our day, this situation drove Jacob to prayer. 
Now, he had been split in his worship of the, the God of the universe. He is sometimes worshiping this God of the universe, and at other times he's not, and the God of his fathers. But he prays to the God of his fathers in verses 9 through 12, and he prays that, O God of my fathers, in verse 9. Jacob, he cries out to God. In verse 10, he makes this bold statement, I am not worthy, yet you have loved me, and you have been faithful to me. In verse 10, It's an epicenter of Jacob's reality that he's going to later confess to Jesus face to face. He is beginning to understand, I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of the steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed with the Jordan and now I become two camps. He came into the land with nothing but a staff and he's walking out with two groups of people, with wealth, with flocks, with herds. And he's saying, I don't deserve any of this. God, before I say anything, before I petition to you, I want to recognize that anything that I have, it's because of your blessing, it's because of your favor. And do you realize this in your life? Some of you in this room have greater, as far as material wealth, than others in this room. But for every one of us, whatever it is that we have, whether we're a high school student, a grade school student, a child, college student, adult, living your life, working your job, whatever it may be, if you have it, it's because God has given it to you. And we can look at others with envy and say, I wish you would give me, God, this or that for this life or that life or greater fulfillment. They're happy a lot. I'd like to be that person. Or we can pause, even now, and recognize as Jacob did, God, you have given me more than I deserve. Whatever it is that I have, it's a gift. And I've deserved none of it. And yet you have been faithful to give it. Jacob has this surreal, real moment with God, and he cries out, I'm not worthy, but you have done all of these things for me. And he had nothing but a staff, but he great, left with great wealth. In 11 and 12, we see his request, protect me from Esau. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, and the mothers with the children. But God, you said, but you said, I will surely do good, do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered in in multitude. Jacob hits the nail on the head. He prays what has been promised to him. He remembers the promise of God upon his life. God, you're going to do this, so I'm calling you out on your word, and I'm trusting here that you're really going to protect. But like so many of us, Jacob immediately, instead of trusting in this prayer as he's trusting, as he's crying out to God, he immediately goes against what he's praying. And he gets to work. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can find favor in Esau. So he trusts God, but in this moment of duplicity, he goes in and he begins to work and plan and scheme. But how can I do this for myself? And we often find ourselves in the mix of this. Believing and yet trying to fix it. Trusting, and yet not trusting. And then frustrated that we don't. And we see this, the flip and the flop. In verse 13, down through 21, Jacob comes up with a plan to try to appease Esau himself. 13 through 19, we get this 
picture of Esau giving more gifts. Maybe I can give him more gifts. Maybe I didn't give him enough. And if I can release more of what I own, more of what I give, more of what I have, and if I can give that to Jacob, I, I can make Esau, if I can give it to Esau, I can, make e- I can make Esau happy. I can appease him. I can make it right. He still believed, Jacob, that it was up to him. Just pray to prayer of faith, believing in the promises of God, and yet believing it still, it's up to me. And why would Jacob think, it's a delusional to be quite honest, why would Jacob think that Esau would believe anything that Jacob said to him? Why, Jacob has been deceitful to his brother, why would Esau, 20 years removed, believe any of the things that Jacob was offering to him? Like, why did Jacob think that he could get himself out of this mess? It kind of comes to the moment, the, the, the pivotal moment that comes to a head, and we get to see the main desire of Jacob in this whole situation. Look at verse 20 and 21. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is his desire. He wants to stand face to face with his brother Esau. And his desire is that maybe, just maybe, the gifts that I have given him will afford me the right to look him in the eye and see my brother that I sinned against, see him appeased. Maybe, just maybe. That's what he wants. That's his desire. So act one, we see this metaphor. We see this desire in Jacob to appease his brother in some way. And we're going to see in God's dealings with him, he's going to flip the script here. And Jesus is going to wrestle. And Jacob is actually going to say in a little bit that I stood face to face with God and have been delivered. It wasn't just his brother that he needed to stand face to face with and have the brother appeased. It was the God of the universe. And with explicit language, he says it, that I have stood, I have seen the face of God, God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He thought this whole thing was about Jacob. Excuse me, he thought this whole thing was about Esau. And yet it was about God. In verse 22, Jacob had sent everything away, and he stayed by himself in the camp. Look at verse 22, down through verse 24. I want to read it and then just say a couple things about it. The same night he arose, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. It's a key verse. He has nothing He sent everyone away. He was all alone. He had nothing to offer. Nothing to give. No bartering materials in his possession. It was just he and the night. Nothing. Unbeknownst to him, he was about to meet the God whom he had sinned against. He has nothing to offer this God. Nothing to give. Nothing that he could present to convince God to accept him. He was alone. 
at some point in our lives, at some point in your life after your death, it will be you alone with God. And I want to ask you this. I don't want to assume that everybody here is a believer. And kids, I want you to hear this as well. When you're alone with God, will God accept you? Do you know Jesus? Will His wrath be appeased? Will He hug you? Say, welcome home. There will be a day for those who can say yes. You'll see Him face to face. Jacob was alone. It was when he was alone... And this, this is the moment, the wrestling moment that's so odd. It's so unique in the Scriptures. The language that's used could be so confusing. But in right order, if we understand this, it's absolutely beautiful. I want you to see the resilience of Jacob. A man who is trying to appease his brother by his own means begins to wrestle with this Jesus, God, in the flesh. And we see it in verse 20, second part of verse 24. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled, as he wrestled with him. We have to ask a question, okay, what is going on? Is this an angel? Is this actually Jesus? Is it God? Well, multiple times in this passage, we, are fa- we find out that this is God. This is not just an angel, it's Jesus. In verse 28, it's, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob responds in verse 24, for I have seen God, God's face to face. I've seen him face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Jesus shows up in the Old Testament again. He regularly does this. And here he is in a wrestling match with Jacob all night long. And if you have any wrestlers in this room, how difficult is it to wrestle for more than like five minutes? I mean, more than 30 seconds. Wrestling takes it out of you. Right? Any wrestlers growing up? Wrestlers in here? Wrestlers? No wrestlers? Goodness. Did anybody ever get in fights and wrestling matches with friends? Okay, I did. Me and Joseph Clifton used to wrestle and fight all the time. And man, I, it was exhausting. You know, you're like, oh my gosh. It must have been like six hours. It was like 38 seconds. All night long, we see the resiliency of Jacob. He will not surrender. And Jesus saw that he did not wrestle Jacob to surrendering. And so what happens? Jesus touched Jacob's hip. Now, this is not a matter of just trying to win an actual wrestling match. Jesus could have done that in a moment. But Jesus saw that Jacob was not yet at the point of surrender. He really wanted to win. He wanted to beat this man down. He wanted to wrestle. He wanted to make himself right with whoever it was that he was dealing with. In the same way he wanted to fix it with his brother Esau, he is resilient in his efforts to not surrender. And Jesus saw that he did not bring him to the point of surrender yet. And so he went up. Kurt, I'm not going to touch your hip here, but he touches the hip of Jacob. 
And just like that moment, I grabbed my son by the shoulders and body slam him down on the bed. He's laughing, not body slam in a bad way, people, but in a good way. Body slam him down. He knows in an instant, I've been had. He got me. Jesus touches him and shows his power in an instant. Wow, this guy's stronger than me. At this point, Jacob's wrestling changes. And he begins to hold on and cling to Jesus. Verse 26, then he said, let me go, Jesus said. Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is his moment of surrender. Jesus says, let me go, because all Jacob could do was hold on to Jesus. Nothing to offer, nothing to barter with. Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob is now finally asking for something. He's not trying to fix anything himself. He's not offering anything. He has nothing to offer. He is clinging to Jesus, desperate for his blessing. He has to have what Jesus has. I won't let you go unless you do something for me. And the man who had everything to give now has nothing to offer and is pleading to be given something from Jesus. Jacob now needs something and won't let Jesus go until he has it. This is the distinctive mark and point of Christianity. We are needy and cannot get for ourselves what we ultimately need. We need Jesus. Jacob didn't go out to find Jesus. Jesus came to him to have dealings with the man left alone with nothing. Sometimes nothing is the hardest thing to have. And Jesus came and found his man. He came and find, found you. And at some point, you and I have come to a point of surrender. Jesus, I have to have you. I have to have you. I can't give you nothing. I need you. Give me everything. I can't handle it. I will cling to you, and I cannot let you go until you give me what I need. This is Jacob, his moment. Verse 27, we get a confession from Jacob, and Jacob says so much more than his name. You know in the Bible, names have meanings, correct? The twelve sons of Israel all have meanings. They're all prophetic in a sense that it paints the way for the future generations, and it actually, in the names, the meaning of the names, kind of shows what the rest of the family and the rest of the lineage is going to look like. And Jacob's name, he cheats, he deceives, was true of his character and Jesus asks him a pointed question, not to get information from Jacob, but to induce a response. And he asked Jacob a question. He said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Why is Jesus asking his name? Again, the language is important. We don't need to conclude because Jesus did not know his name. 
In the same way, when I say to my son, you got me, we know that it's not me saying that you actually pinned me down. Jesus is a wordsmith. The God of the universe is a mastermind with language. And he speaks in such a way to induce in us feelings and emotions and things and realities where we, we, we step back and we think about it and we question it and we're like, man, I need to change. He reads us. And he calls out to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob, for the first time in his life, doesn't just repeat his name back to Jesus. He owns his name. I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the cheat. I'm the one who's mistreated my brother. I'm the one who's ran from you, God, not just ran from my family. I'm Jacob. And I have been a deceiver of both God and man. It's at this moment that Jesus speaks as he does. Not anymore, it's not. Not anymore, Jacob. Jesus says in verse 28, He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Prevailed? How do you prevail against God? Well, clearly, someone can. Jesus speaks, that's not who you are anymore, Jacob. You are Israel. Jacob won. He prevailed how? Through deception? Through cheating? By gift giving? By somehow or another convincing this Jesus? Through what he could give this Jesus? No. That's not how he prevailed. Jacob prevailed by clinging to Jesus. He prevailed by giving Jesus nothing. He wanted only what Jesus could give him. He surrendered and he won. This is the great irony of the story. The victor is the one who gives nothing and gets everything. Notice the humility in Jacob's response. How Jacob responds is indicative of how we should understand the story. He responds in great humility. Look at verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he was blessed. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen the God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered Notice the language that, J that Jacob uses. He doesn't respond and say, Yes, I have won. I have prevailed against the Almighty. I, in the history of the world, am the only one who have wrestled with Jesus and prevailed. Because that's not what happened. It did happen but not in that way, responsive way. Humility. He saw the face of God and the words that Jacob used to describe what just happened is, I saw God face to face and I have been delivered. 
That's what prevailing is. That's what winning is. It's being delivered. And you and I have been delivered. We have stood before a holy God and by the grace of God have not been crushed. We have been saved. We have been delivered. And there's going to be a day, really tangible with flesh, that we stand and we see our maker face to face, eye to eye, and he will have already been appeased. And we won't offer up our resumes. We won't offer up any gifts. God, look at all the things that I did for you. I prayed. I cast out demons. I healed all in your name. Look, God, at all these things. We'll stand face to face with the maker of the universe. And because of Jesus' willing, willingness to be patient with us and wrestle us down to the point that all we had was to cling to Jesus, we'll stand before a holy God and say, all I have is Jesus. That's it. I have nothing to offer. I, I'm a recipient of the Almighty's grace. We will, we will be delivered forevermore. Deliverance. Salvation. Jacob was delivered. He was saved. Anne Lamont is an author, quite liberal actually, uh, had been an agnostic atheist, quite vocal about that. And uh, still yet, the things that she writes are kind of loony, to be quite honest. Great writer though, as far as artistic form. She reflects in one of her books that she wrote, her book called traveling mercies, she reflects on her conversion. And I want to read a couple chapters because the way Jesus wrestles with us, it's so particular. It's so unique. And some of you have experienced the wrestling work of Jesus where He got you. It may have been a season. It may have been years. It may have been a moment. But you've experienced the patience of God where time and time again you stumbled, you walked away, and the Spirit of God kept pursuing you. Kept pursuing you. And kept pursuing you. And kept pursuing you. Kept pursuing you. And she reflects some of the language. It is age appropriate. And I'll monitor and make sure that I... But I want you to hear this. She went to the flea market the week after a week that she had an abortion. I stayed home. I smoked dope. Got drunk. Tried to write a little. The seventh night was very drunk. And just about to take a sleeping pill, I just discovered that I was bleeding. It didn't stop for the next hour or so. I thought I should call a doctor, but I was disgusted that I had gotten so drunk one week after an abortion. I just couldn't wake somebody up and ask for help. Several hours later, it stopped. I got in bed. I was shaky and sad. After a while, I lay there. I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. And I just assumed that it was my father whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned the light on for a moment to make sure that no one was there, and of course there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt Him as surely as I feel my dog laying nearby as I write this. And I was appalled. I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliantly hilarious progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian. And it seemed utterly impossible, an utterly impossible thing that, sim that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and I said out loud, I would rather die. 
I felt him just sitting there on his hunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love. I squinched my eyes shut. It didn't help, because that's not what I was seeing with him. Finally, I was asleep. In the morning, he was gone. The experience spooked me badly. I thought it was just an apportation, whatever that word is, born of fear and self-loathing and loss of blood. But then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that this little cat was following me. Here's where it kind of gets weird, but hang with me. Wanting me to reach down and pick it up. Wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, you give it a little milk and it stays forever. So I tried to stay one step ahead of it, slamming my door shut wherever I entered or left. And one week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was ridiculous. Like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if, if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in, my, in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry before the benediction. I raced home and felt that little cat running at my heels. And I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under the sky as blue as God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my house and I stood there a minute and hung my head and I said, okay, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, Jesus, you can come in. So this is my beautiful moment of conversion. Now the language falls through. There are things that sound weird. Talking about Jesus. Like, but the point here is that Jesus was after her. Was patient with her. And finally got her and she prevailed. She won that day. She won through surrender. And one day... We'll stand before the Lord. And again, will we offer gifts? No. Right now, in this moment, are you wrestling with Jesus? You need to hear it from me. You need what only He can give. You need to be blessed by Him. You need deliverance. You need to be saved. Don't offer Him anything. Cling to Him with everything. Will you confess your sin? Cling to Jesus this morning. Cling to Him. Don't let Him go. And then for the Christian, verse 30, 31, look at this. The sun rose up upon Him as He passed Penuel, limping because of His hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that's in the hip socket because He touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of his thigh. For the Christian, hear this, Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life. He remembered that moment when his Jesus touched his hip. A constant reminder of the power of the man he wrestled with. And for us, we remember all the days of our life, all the days of our lives, the limp that we walk with is not boastful swagger as if we are giving God any sort of uh, benefit or bonus, the fact that we're following Him. We walk with a limp 
that is not boastful swagger, it is Christ-like humility. We know that all or anything that we are is because of the grace of God alone. And remember, beloved, remember, beloved, remember, beloved, you are delivered. You have seen God face to face and have been delivered. And you are His. Let's pray. Father, You are kind, immensely kind. And I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Jesus, for Your patience to wrestle with us. For some of the people in this room, Your wrestling, it was not just a night. It was decades upon decades upon decades. And for others, You came and You touched us with that powerful finger and it was an instant. And if there's anybody that does not know you right now, that this would be their point of surrender. That maybe even out loud they would say, I I quit. And that they would prevail today. And for those of us in this room, I pray that we would feel the proverbial limp in our hip socket. That we are not saved because of any gift that we have offered the God of the universe. That we are not better than anybody else in this world. That we would feel deep in our soul a sense of gratitude and thankfulness that the God of the universe came to us, wrestled with us when we were alone and saved us. And that we could stand with Jacob and say, I have seen God and I have been delivered. And that we would remember that. We wouldn't forget it. If we had begun to walk, if we had begun to walk with a swagger, Touch us again. Cause us to limp. Help us to remember every moment what you have done for us. It's going to be our joy to sing to you. As we sing this song, it's not just for non-believers. Because believers come to you, Jesus, over and over and over again. Pastors come to you over and over and over again. We remember our souls get weary. We get tired. We get excited, we get happy, you get deliverances come, and we need to remember again, we come to Jesus. No matter what, we're coming to Jesus. And so we're going to come to you and we're going to sing, we're going to worship. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Jesus, wrestle with us. Help us to remember your wrestlings. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.